Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Okay, 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 okay. Before I start running my mouth today, um, a few things. One is uh, for those people who were unable to obtain the uh, show, the archive show over the weekend, uh, we had a little technical trouble with the uh, service that uh, carries our show on the weekends, the uh, podcasts. And that has been fixed. However, there are other ways, and I'm going to let you know there are other ways to get the show if and when uh, that might ever happen again. There's other ways to get the uh, show, uh, the podcast of the show. Also, um, if you like this show, and I get, you know, I do get emails, sometimes a few emails or more than a few, telling me that they like this show or that it's important to them. 
if you like it, do me a favor. Tell other people about it. Share it with other people because it's um, perhaps petty and vain, but uh, the more people that listen, the more I like it. Uh, And uh, for those of you who are still absolutely passionate about politics, and of course, I know a lot of you are. Uh, You're not uh, old and jaded and cynical like I am. Um, You can go to my um, website, faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, and I just put a new blog entry in there about um, the Trump-Clinton debates, the inevitable debates that will take place. Um, How they will uh, unfold is anybody's guess. The debates are kind of silly to begin with, the way they're constructed. Um, You know, Secretary Clinton, uh, you have one minute to uh, tell us how you will solve the problem of unemployment. And uh, you have 30 seconds to respond to a 30-second response on how you will stop war in all the rest of the world. (laughs) It's already a bullshit cartoon. It's not really a debate. It's a silly, you know, sort of third graders or second graders version of a coloring book idea of how people should be elected. And this time it's going to be worse, of course, because you got the reality TV star versus somebody who could come off like a high school principal. So um, it's going to be very tricky. And I've, I've written a blog post about this um, at faderfiles.com. <clears throat> so last week, I'm saying it so, everybody says so. Why does everybody say so when they answer a question these days? Especially, I know younger people do this. Anybody under the age of 35, uh, it doesn't matter uh, about uh, level of education or or, uh, professional uh, expertise in any subject. They're asked a question. This happened to me when I was interviewing people, um, and occasionally still happens when I interview people. I'll ask a a complicated or hopefully intelligent question, and there's a slight pause, and somebody says, so... The, does it have something? It must have something to do with texting. I got a feeling that the way people speak these days has a lot to do with texting. I think texting has influenced the way people actually speak to each other, uh, especially younger people who do it more often. Uh, although it's not just younger people; people in their forties and fifties and sixties text. I have a friend who says that um, emails are so out of date, and even talking on the phone is becoming so out of date that um, uh, he's a lawyer, and when he tries to get a response from somebody on some um, case that he's working on, he can uh, leave a phone call or leave a message, an email message, or you know, he can call up and leave something on people's voicemail, but he'll only get a response quickly or at all sometimes if he texts. So yes, it's a new world. Now, last week, um, on the way down here today, it was yet again, by the way, um, For those of you who are listening for the first time, and there's always some people listening for the first time, you're going to hear a lot of that because I have a constant sore throat from um, some surgery I had a couple of uh, years ago. So either you like it or you don't. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, maybe there are things I can do about it, but um, that would require some extreme um, action, which I might not decide to take. Anyhow, where was I? So um, if you're just uh, listening to the show for the first time, or this is the first time you've ever heard me at all on any radio station, I will tend to wander. Uh, The show um, will not be linear. The show will um, often um, have interruptions or pauses while I uh, gather my thoughts. 
So it's not going to sound like a regular radio show. Last week, <clears throat> this is a bad week for, um, for uh, it could be a coffee. I think I'm drinking too much coffee, which in turn, this is, uh, you, you're terribly concerned about this, I know, which in turn causes acid in my stomach and splashes up into my throat. I think that's it. And I could go to 14 different doctors and have eight different tests and find out what I probably already instinctively understand. But I like coffee. I didn't have it for years. I used to drink coffee all the time till I had uh, um, my uh, near-death experience from a heart attack about two and a half years ago. And I stopped drinking coffee because I was so jumpy and nervous and because I thought it would uh, be a problem for my heart. But it turned out it wasn't. So now I've started drinking coffee again. But as soon as I started drinking coffee... Um, I know Gary Null says that caffeine itself, any kind of caffeine is bad for you. I could believe it. But coffee, I love the way it tastes. And I've been drinking tea for a couple and a half, two and a half years now, you know, green tea, which basically tastes like a shoe uh, boiled in water. <laughs> I know. They're the best kinds of green tea, if you spend a lot of money uh, and get really good green tea, it does have a very soothing, almost spiritual uh, effect on you, and it has a good taste. But most green tea, which is what I can afford, even, you know, um, green tea from a health food store, but the lower class of it, just tastes terrible to me. It's just uh, just like bad mouthwash or something. It's bland. It's not even like that. It's just so bland, right? So I've been drinking coffee, which I love. I love coffee. And I like the antidepressant effect of it. I like the fact that it makes you energetic, at least it does to me. It, it makes me energetic. It focuses me, wakes me up. It uh, pulls me uh, at least a few feet out of the hole I'm in all the time, spiritually and emotionally. So, and I get a lot of work done when I drink coffee. I can concentrate, like I said, and I can, um, I can do creative work better on coffee. Uh, if I play a game, play Scrabble with people sometimes, my brain works better, get a higher score. So I recommend, despite the fact that it's evil and bad for you, according to the, um, according to the expert, Gary Null, I, on the other hand, recommend coffee if you are suffering from you know, low points or you're scattered in your mind or whatever. It will kill you. I'm sure Gary's right. And it will you know, rot your organs, but uh, I like it. <laughs> Anyhow, last week I was talking about... Um, I haven't had any this morning, though it sounds like I did. It'll often sound like I had coffee, but I haven't had any. I wish I did have some, but it would make my throat even worse than it is now. Last week I was talking about uh, my wife and I took a vacation in Maine, and it wasn't so much a vacation. It was uh, her mother uh, is, um, is old and frail now, although she's doing pretty well, I have to say. She's got a lot of spirit, and she's... Uh, uh, doing uh, pretty well for somebody her age. But uh, we went up to visit her, get her settled in a new place that she's living. And um, so it wasn't uh, completely a vacation, but it was a vacation in the sense that we relocated ourselves to a different place um, and a different milieu, which is to say it's the exact opposite, as I mentioned last week, exact opposite of Manhattan. When I took the bus again down here to this neighborhood again, to this radio station, I had to put myself in the middle of uh, the most astounding uh, visual and uh, audio uh, cacophony and mess 
and uh, and and apocalyptic views every two seconds. The noise, the sirens, the drills, the uh, the sledgehammers, the uh, the caterpillar machines, the uh, the construction, the destruction. Uh, I must have seen on the way down here from um, from where I live in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side down to the um, down to the sort of lower not Lower East Side but um, down in a completely different direction of Manhattan. I must have passed by or looked at even accidentally though I was trying to avoid looking. I must have seen ten thousand different people. You know, not consciously. You know, I wasn't counting. I didn't have a tabulator. But I mean, it's just overwhelming. <laughs> and as I mentioned last week, we were up in Maine for about 10 days where there are very few people, where it is very quiet, and where it was very green. We were staying in a, in a rural or semi-rural place. And um, <clears throat> trees everywhere, uh, bushes, plants, flowers, fields everywhere. And it has the most calming effect. I mean, walking through the city... Uh, I can understand why people, I've made fun of people for doing this before, and I've criticized this because uh, I'm old and I don't like anything new. <laughs> and because I think there are some things that are psychologically disturbing about it or en masse, you know, that it's so, um, not just psychologically disturbing, but sociological, sociologically disturbing, that everybody, oh, everybody, one out of three people, Maybe sometimes one out of two people, depending on the neighborhood you're in, has got their head bent and they're staring at their their uh, smartphone uh, while they're walking on the street. Uh, bad enough people who shouldn't be doing it are doing it, like people who are nannies or people who are hired to take care of little kids. So they sit there flopped in total depression when trying to get the attention of people who are sometimes speaking another language or... And anyhow, talking um, uh, nonstop with their headphones on or without their headphones, uh, staring at their machines. And that includes their parents, not blaming it. There's not a class warfare show. (laughs) The parents sometimes are also walking along while their children who need this eye-to-eye contact. I once interviewed somebody on one of my radio shows, a psychologist who um, I think uh, worked at, um, at Duke University. And she had done many, many experiments and written a book about the fact that um, there are, um, there are uh, you know, there is eye contact that is necessary between people to actually develop people emotionally and intellectually. Um, uh, if you hear any, uh, I don't know, I guess you can't hear it on this microphone because these are, these are directional microphones and inside a studio. But if you hear any kind of uh, bumping or noise outside, we're having... Um, some furniture moved in and out and some uh, changes going on uh, outside the studio. So people walk around so. <laughs> Should I train myself not to say it? I don't know. Meanwhile, how's that, how's that for a substitute? Meanwhile, or I might say so. So people are looking at these. I can understand now. Finally, uh, in my hard heart, has cracked open a little bit. And I can understand why people are spending so much time staring, or one reason, I should say. There are many reasons for this. But I can understand one reason why people spend so much time staring at their, he- staring at their phones, uh, whatever they're doing, reading, or I don't know what people, I have no idea what people are doing when they're looking at their phones walking on the street. 
if I looked at a thousand people, or you know, if I look at a thousand people walking on the street or riding on the bus, and I see them out the window, three hundred of them are staring at their phones, walking on the street. I don't know why. I have no idea what they're looking at. Uh, some of them are talking. Some of them aren't. I don't know. But uh, it's hard to figure out. I can't figure out what they're looking at. Hold on one second. I think I'll get some water. Headphones. Yes. Okay. And you know what? I think I'll even get some more water. Can you hear it? Sound effects. Used to have sound effects, right? People got paid to do sound effects in old time radio. It's my metal water jug. I got a metal water jug because um, I read all these articles about how plastic can destroy your innards. So now I have something called a clean canteen. <clears throat> so why, why are people looking at all this stuff? I don't know what they're looking at. I can understand why they would look at that. Because it blocks out the insanity of the city. On the other hand, on the other hand, when I was, and you know, you put the headphones on and you're listening to your playlist or... You're listening to uh, a podcast or you're, uh, I don't know what you, I don't know what all these people listen to. I have no idea. Maybe they're listening to voicemail messages or whatever it is, but their headphones are on and or they're staring at the screen and you can block out the noise and the insanity and the grimy, filthy streets and buildings and the demolition and the construction of the city. All the, uh, everything that's cracked and falling apart. Talk about infrastructure. (laughs) This city is an old city for America. This is an old city. This is a a middle Atlantic or, you know, northeastern city, which is, um, it's old. The pipes are broken. uh, Sewage is always being fixed. And, of course, if it's not uh, 100-year-old sewer pipes or water pipes that have to be replaced constantly, it's uh, electrical uh, cables that have to be replaced, and they have to, and then, and there's cables for everything now, right? All the um, all the gadgets we have in our houses require uh, cables, fiber optic, and God knows what other kinds of cables. So, uh, all these things are being replaced and laid down and uh, coordinated. Can you imagine what it looks like underground in Manhattan? Extra- it must be absolutely extraordinary. Old sewer pipes, uh, new sewer pipes. Water pipes, um, you know, electric cable, uh, which are covered by uh, pipes of their own, um, and then new cables, which are which are covered perhaps by pipes or just cables that are laid and tied together for uh, for televisions and for everything else. Amazing, astounding. So, I can understand why people would want to block it out. I don't block it out. I should get one of these phones. I should give up and just stare at it like everybody else. I mean, what is there to see and what is there to hear in the city that isn't nine out of ten times overwhelming and offensive? Not much as far as I can tell. The only time that I don't mind looking at what's going on around me. Listening, I don't want to hear. It was way too much noise for me. But looking, I can do through a camera lens. If I have my camera, and I have to get my camera fixed because the lens just broke, so I think I'll go buy a new lens uh, and try not to get a refurbished one, see if I can afford a new one for my model camera, which is a little old. But once I look through the camera lens, it's the same thing. I focus and concentrate so much on whatever picture I'm taking that I don't really hear the noise temporarily. 
and I don't, um, and I don't, uh, and I'm not offended by the thousands of people and all the things jumping around me because I don't see them. I the focus of looking through the camera lens to take a picture isolates all that stuff and just takes it away from me uh, during the time that I'm actually taking the picture, which is uh, uh, a, it's a godsend and. Um, not only that, I'm getting some good shots, which I can post online, and people enjoy looking at them, which is the most important thing. Um, so I went to, uh, I know, <laughs> I can't stop saying it. Now it's in my head. So uh, I went recently to see, um, so we, we're, out, we're up on the, uh, we're traveling on the highway up to Maine and traveling back, and you stop at these rest stops. Uh, first of all, you're going so fast in a car, and this is nothing compared to uh, to the speed of a plane, of course. The people across the hall from me are TV and movie producers, and currently uh, one of them is working on a TV series, uh, which will remain unnamed at the moment. Um, uh, she's um, an executive producer on a TV series that a lot of you may have seen, and it films in different places in the world films in, in New York City, but also films in different other places in the world. <clears throat> she um, recently came back from a month, and she and she and her family, they went over there because she was working over in, um, in a city in Europe for a month. And um, these people are big travelers because they, tra- they travel all over the place all the time. And they take planes a lot. They do take planes a lot. Especially uh, my, uh, you know, my neighbor who produces this TV series, who's an executive producer. So you fly to a place, and I haven't been on a plane for a long, long time now. I think it's probably nine or ten years I haven't been on an airplane. But the experience of, you know, people call it jet lag. But imagine flying to a place compared to the way it used to be. In the very beginning, you know, of the country... Uh, in the beginning of the uh, the white version of the country, people had horses. They had wagons. That was it. If you wanted to get, if you wanted to go a couple of hundred miles, or if, God, if you wanted to go a thousand miles, it's a journey of several weeks to several months, or at least a couple of weeks to several months, if you want to go uh, someplace. So the effect of that is that while you're going relatively slowly compared to, or you're walking, I mean, you know, the original inhabitants and and then the earlier white settlers when they wanted to get from one place to another, you know, didn't have a horse, didn't own a horse, uh, maybe they didn't have a cart, they walked, right? So when you're walking someplace and then you have to rest and you have to stop, and it takes you weeks to go um, a couple of hundred miles far away to another place, it... You get accustomed as you go along to the change in the scenery, the change in the kinds of people you're seeing, the change in uh, maybe accents or the way people speak if you're going a long distance, the change in the wildlife and the nature and the creatures that are around. But when you take a plane and you zap or in another country entirely where everybody speaks a different language and every custom is different and everything, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary change. If you live in the United States or you live within a country, like for instance, you live within France or England, there are regional differences, obviously. You know, people have different accents. There's different kinds of food. There are different stores. There's different um, nature. There's different um, scenery to look at or not look at. But if you, but if you fly, I mean, um, in, internally in each country, 
it's not so bad. But to fly to a foreign country and then fly back, it's extraordinary to have to readjust, I guess unless you're used to it. My father used to fly all the time. He flew, you know, to various countries, to uh, jungles, to foreign cities, to mountain ranges, to inaccessible places, to very accessible places, places where he didn't understand a word of the language, places where the food was completely different. And uh, he seemed to be pretty good with that. What he couldn't do was stay in one place at home. (laughs) He was not good at that. But this idea of speed, and when we were going up to Maine uh, a couple of weeks ago, you're driving up there on the highway, and within several hours, you're hundreds of miles away. So suddenly, you take yourself out of this brick, cement, glass, and steel crazy city, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're driving up the highway, and you pull off on a rest stop, and you don't hear all that stuff. You don't see all those people. Yeah, there's a lot of people at the rest stop. But, you know, the rest stops are all right next to the woods. They're all right next to the woods. And there are picnic tables. Now, you go inside the rest stops. It's um, Papa Gino's Pizza and Dunkin' Donuts and all kinds of trash and crap for sale. You know, teddy bears and, you know, keychains with uh, mooses on them. Is it moose? (laughs) Moose is the plural. But I like mooses. Like, I would even say mouses, right? Sound, it just has a more substantial sound to it. So all this, all this crap is inside there. And then, you know, uh, these vast, um, you know, uh, dumps for human waste, basically. You know, you stop off on the rest stop on the highway. But the speed, you're going up there. Within six or seven hours, you can be in a place that's um, 300 miles away. And suddenly you take yourself out of your environment. That could be one way that you go from, you could go from a rural area straight into the middle of New York City and your head would be swimming, I'm sure. But it's the same thing in reverse. You go from New York City, which we did, from Manhattan specifically too, which is extremely more crowded than in the other uh, boroughs uh, in a special way, kind of an overwhelming way. And you're suddenly uh, several hours later, the speed of the car. Now, partially that's because I'm old. I think uh, the older you are, the more inflexible you are. Literally, physically, emotionally, perhaps even spiritually, you're less flexible. So you can't adjust as well to things that are new or that are faster, right? So if you're going up and we go up in a car and we're going on a highway 60, 65 miles an hour at average speed, and we get up there and you're, you're sort of dizzy. You're kind of swimming. But at least uh, these rest stops on the highway, you stop off. And um, when I noticed that one rest stop, or I, f- I had this feeling when I stopped off at one of the rest stops, that um, and it was and these are right next to uh, sort of patches or areas of woods. And some of the woods, uh, even on the side of the highway, but especially near the rest stops, there are picnic tables and people are sitting there. People with you know license plates from New York and. You know, there are people who are from Boston and from New York City and spend their whole lives there or maybe grew up there. And all of a sudden, you're sitting at a picnic table 200 miles away from the city that, you, that you're used to. And um, uh, civilization, it's called. <laughs> civilization. Are we civilized? Is Boston civilized? Is New York City civilized? Well, anyhow, it's called civilization. And you're sitting at the rest stops at these picnic tables and uh, the cars are whizzing by on the highway. And there you are sitting there, and you're right next to uh, woods, 
forest areas, right? Um, some of which are uh, immediately, they're just overwhelmed. It's been a lot of rain in the Northeast. I don't know about other places. And I hope there's been rain in other places, but maybe not too much. But the, the brush is, uh, is thick, right? And you hear the sounds of birds and things moving in the underbrush. And it dawned on me, uh, or it occurred to me, how close, how, how thin the line is between uh, nature, quote, unquote, and, um, and civilization, quote, unquote. Uh, is there any line at all? It's a very thin line. You lay out a parking lot, you put in a Dunkin' Donuts, you have a rest stop, put in some toilets, trucks park, cars park, all, all the accoutrements of uh, accoutrement <laughs> of civilization and of modern progress and modern life. But the woods are there. The woods are there. And because of all the rain we've had in the last couple of months, they're really overgrown. And sometimes the fringes, the sides of the parking lots, the sides of the rest stops, the asphalt or the cement is starting to crack because the inevitable growth of of the roots of the trees and the underbrush and the nature that's there and the animal life is there. What is staring at you? I wouldn't say who, but what is staring at you while you sit there and you uh, open your styrofoam takeout, uh, Dunkin' Donuts food, on the picnic table? There are things probably in that wood, in, the, in those forest patches, that, um, and the, you know, the, the, the way human beings have lived, we've managed to kill off a lot of species, and uh, certainly if we haven't killed them off, we've uh, almost decimated them to the point where they're hardly existing, and they're certainly not a threat. But <clears throat> occasionally you will hear about uh, coyotes or bears in, um, in uh, suburban areas, uh, coyotes, bears, uh, raccoons, creatures that have some, um, some bite and some heft to them and some possibility of doing harm. And I'm thinking, uh, I was aware suddenly of the looming nature of nature itself, of the fact that any moment, there's a thin, thin line, a thin line. James Jones wrote a book called The Thin Red Line, which is, by the way, they made a movie. Uh, Terrence Malick is the director. They made a movie of The Thin Red Line, which is much better than the book. The Thin Red Line, when you read it now, which is about World War II, about Americans fighting the Japanese in uh, the Pacific in World War II. And it's about um, the breakdown of, of common human decency and accepted human values, and the breakdown of civilization while these two groups of people are trying to murder each other in the most complete, efficient, and brutal way possible. To, uh, to murder each other so that one will be the, the victor and the other one will be the loser, right? Um, and obviously he chose this because there's a thin red line, a wonderful way to put it, a thin red line between man and beast, between human beings and animals and beasts. But in this particular case, he meant um, what's bestial, what's beastly uh, in terms of what is uh, liable to uh, tear your throat out. Not a question of little bunnies or deer or anything like that. Or even regular animals who basically, you know, they do what they do. I mean, a bear, a wolf, a coyote, there's nothing, uh, a shark, there's nothing evil about any of these creatures, right? 
it's only human beings. This is very Mark Twainish, right? Who who pretend to know the difference or should know the difference between um, uh, what they're choosing to do and say and how they act that might pass into a description of being um, deliberately um, um, evil almost. Uh, There is a thin red line. And in war, it breaks down. This line breaks down. And I was aware of this line, though, when I was at these rest stops with everybody and these families, and they're all looking at their, they're sitting there at the picnic tables, looking at their, um, there they are right next to these beautiful woods, even though it's, a, you know, they just got their Dunkin' Donuts stuff. They're eating their Dunkin' Donuts uh, crap, uh, poisoning themselves with it out of uh, the styrofoam uh, containers. And they are all staring at their machines, and they uh, are uh, right next to patches of woods where I felt like some beast could reach out (laughs) was this a wish on my part some beast could reach out and just snatch one of them right just snatch one of them away and maybe the others wouldn't notice because they're so busy looking at their iPhones I don't know or their smartphones whatever they are androids you know I don't I don't have no idea what these things are one day I'll wind up with one, so it'll, it'll prove me to be the hypocrite I am. And we recently, we just, my wife and I over the weekend went to see this movie Tarzan, the new version of Tarzan, which, by the way, is terrible. Do not, I am now warning you, do not go see Tarzan um, unless you're five years old or unless you really like really bad acting and no story and no character whatsoever. Uh, let me define what this movie Tarzan is. This movie Tarzan is fantastic shots of who knows how much of it is real jungle or not, right? I don't know, or real of the real Congo. It takes place in the Congo. And there are many graphic uh, gorillas. And these days, the, um, the process of uh, digital creation, and I don't know what it's called, digital effects in the movies, is has advanced to the point where it's extraordinary and almost impossible not to watch. It's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, think of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the trilogy with the Hob- Lord of the Ring trilogy, the Ring trilogy. But <clears throat> it's a really awful movie. Uh, now, if you're just interested in action, nonstop action, and you want a lot of uh, you know, nasty beasts and gorillas, and you want a lot of guns going off and a lot of people getting murdered, and you want to see some beautiful, if they are in fact real, vistas, and um, you want to look at uh, Tarzan, who's this big, handsome hunk, and you want to look at Jane, who is beautiful but has got the brain of a parakeet, then you could go see Tarzan. Go see Tarzan. The acting, except for uh, one or two people, is um, abysmal, and it is not for uh, anybody who's interested. And the real, there have been better Tarzans. Tarzan itself is a fascinating story. Tarzan was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, an American writer. Uh, sometime, I'm, you know, I'm have to guess now because there there have been about twelve or thirteen different versions of Tarzan, and about six different or seven different Tarzans in the movies. I think there might have been a Tarzan television series. I'm not really sure. All kind. Johnny Weissmuller was the first talking Tarzan in the movies. But there was a man named Elmo Lincoln, who was a silent movie star, who played Tarzan even before the first Johnny Weissmuller movies in the 30s. And um, 
those Tarzan movies, uh, as old as they are, and as uh, as bad an actor as Johnny Weissmuller was, and as uh, racist and terrible as they are, um, were better than this Tarzan. This is the worst Tarzan I've ever seen. But what is it about? The story itself is absolutely fascinating, and I'm not going to review the whole story, but it's about, it is specifically about civilization and the height of civilization, about uh, English nobility, right? British nobility and the jungle, the beasts of the jungle and the quote-unquote savages who live in the jungle and evil white hunters. And so the worst in people comes out when they go in the jungle because the jungle is kill or be killed. It's full of savages. Of course, the jungle is what it is. The jungle is not, uh, does not see itself. There are not people in there making conscious choices uh, like certain political candidates to insult people or to ravage other people. They're just surviving. It's kill or be killed. It's eat or be eaten. And that's the way they live. That's, that's their lives, the animals in the jungle. And the people in the jungle, yeah, they make certain choices and they have certain rituals and certain, um, and certain ways of behaving, which uh, a lot of people in uh, a lot of the white colonials and a lot of white Europeans found outrageous and unacceptable. But they were in there for the money anyhow, for the, for the diamonds, for the gold, and um, especially the worst people in the Congo were the Belgians. But the, stu- the, the original Edgar Rice Burroughs story, though it is written sort of a little bit like a boy's adventure story, is fascinating because it is about this one subject, because it is about what he saw and what he understood to be the very thin, almost non-existent line, which gets crossed constantly, and which the very thin frail division between uh, what we take to be civilized behavior or civilized life and, and, uh, and bestial or brute life. And this is put, these, are, uh, these are put in qualifications on these words, right? But uh, the, between the jungle and between Greystoke Manor in England, where, where, uh, where Tarzan goes to live when he finds out that he's actually Lord Greystoke, um, between these two places may seem may have a couple of thousand miles between them and may seem like uh, uh, the, the biggest separation in civilization and in behavior and in manner that you could possibly imagine. It can change in a second. In one, that was a finger snap. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it again. Okay. Can change in a second. Just put people in war. This happened in Vietnam. Right there are novels about this. It, it people uh, or put people in a situation where they come from some quote a civilized place and then put them in uh, a war situation. And this is what the Thin Red Line was about. This is what many uh, war novels are about. It's uh, surprising to people, but it shouldn't be how quickly people lose their civilized ways and how quickly they will descend. To, uh, to behavior, which is much worse, of course, than uh, there's something bad about the behavior of animals. It's just their behavior. People like, um, people like ISIS, people like um, the, the imperial colonial powers in, uh, in South America and the United States, the Belgians in the Congo, the Spanish in all their different colonies, the French, the Dutch, uh, the British in their various colonies, executing people, um, uh, you know, torturing people, putting people in concentration camps, assassinating people, uh, you know, uh, raping people, 
because there were lower forms of life, because what difference did it make? <clears throat> so the thin red line, thin red line is always there. And I'm, I know it in myself. I know it in myself. Uh, when I, when I uh, because I've never really quite been civilized myself, I always feel, you know, I always feel, I occasionally feel a sense of rage boiling up at me. I'm angry about something. And, um, you know, I haven't adjusted to some situation or I'm angry about some, something that's happening in my life. And I do feel that itching. I'm, I'm, I would say, unfortunately, too much in touch with the beast inside me. Um, I have... Uh, I can't. I can't speak for other people. Though I'm assuming that if you get a guy like Donald Trump, take a guy like Donald Trump. Uh, take my candidate, please. <laughs> Donald Trump is a good example. Just like Hitler was a good example of what is available to be to be uh, to be mined very quickly and very very uh, widely in the mass of humanity. Uh, a guy like him with his distorted, crazy face, with his bulging face, with his eyes, uh, you know, popping out of his head, <clears throat> with that snarling, beast-like look on his, on his, uh, in his mouth when it twists and when he s almost snarls. Um, and when you look at Hitler, that screaming, that, that insane stare and the screaming and the yelling, um, Tens of millions of people are ready to react to that. If people did not have within them these, these feelings of uh, violence and, uh, uh, and uh, lust for power and greed and, and, um, and sexual dominance, and I should say people, I should say men mostly or almost entirely, if that didn't exist on the widest possible scale, then it couldn't be tapped into. And such people like Hitler and Trump would just be seen as mere low-level cartoons, clowns, losers, and morons. But they're, uh, and they may actually be, but they aren't if you define them by their effect on people and on the masses, on what they bring out in people. Now look at Donald Trump. Look at Donald Trump. Uh, he manages to do the worst things all the time. The fact that Donald Trump, by the way, that he's vulgar, that he's stupid, that he, I don't know if he's stupid, but that he's vulgar, let's say that he's ignorant, or maybe he is a little dim in his bulb, right? That, he, um, that he's involved with scandals, that he, uh, that, he, uh, that, you know, that he can be made fun of, that his face looks so silly sometimes and so outrageous and so scary, that he's like a cartoon. The fact that he's like a cartoon and vulgar and that things in his life could be scandalous that doesn't mean anything to the people that, uh, that support him. In fact, the more of that, the better, because these people have been brainwashed by TV, and they have uh, very little control themselves and very little, um, uh, very little interest in controlling what is the worst in them. You know, tr Trump brings out the worst in people. So the worse he acts, the more he's going to solidify the base of people who vote for him. And he may even win over some other people, too. But I believe the situation with Trump is this, that he has reached, he has reached a certain point, and I don't think he's going to get anybody else. And how many people are undecided anyhow? How many people are undecided in this, in this, um, in this election anyhow? Can you imagine if somebody called up a—and uh, uh, now— uh, 
um, recognizing a lot of the people who listen to me, and I, I write these uh, blog posts. Again, if you want to read uh, the latest blog post I've written, which is about politics, specifically about the debates between, I'm fascinated about what the debates will look like between Clinton and between Clinton and Trump. Uh, the first debate, by the way, is September 26th, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Not for anything else except for the morbid fascination of the entertainment value of it and watching two completely different personalities um, argue with each other or contest with each other on a stage. Like I say, the debates are absurd to begin with. They're just um, kind of insulting and foolish and almost anti-democratic. They're just shows to put on. They might as well have a Vanna White or buzzers going off or, you know, after a minute... Instead of uh, an anchor, you know, pretending to be serious from some news organization, so, uh, Secretary Clinton, you're now over your one minute. <laughs> your one minute. Your one fucking minute. Your one minute to explain the complexity of uh, abortion laws or, uh, you know, uh, laws in different states that have to do with unemployment or environmental issues. One minute. Do they ever give them more than one minute? I think they give them two minutes to introduce themselves. It's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. Now, yes, people like me go on too long, right? I mean, to talk for, uh, what has it now been, 40, you know, 44 minutes or 43 minutes and going on, uh, I don't know, how, mu- how much time is left, by the way? How much time do I have left? 10 minutes? Okay. Was that, did that mean stop or did I have 10 minutes left? Okay. 10 minutes left. So, um to talk like this is unusual, to say the least, right? But for somebody who's being elected to a responsible public office, and in this case, the most responsible public office, to be the president of the United States, uh, to have one minute to explain vast, deep, complex issues which affect all of us and which are a matter sometimes of life and death, war, and the environment and, and all these things and whether or not you get paid enough to even have a place to live or to eat and the income inequality, the astounding income inequality from which most of our ills arise and the ills of the world arise. But you get a guy like Trump. Trump it very much does remind me of Hitler and I'm not going to worry anymore about people making comparisons. You know, I shouldn't make such comparisons. I shouldn't really. Yeah, really? Well, I am. <laughs> Because they're on a continuum. Put it that way. They're on a continuum. Trump is a kind of baby, nascent fascist. I don't believe that Trump actually uh, has the strength. I mean, Hitler, by the way, not to, uh, I mean, Trump is a very, he's a very big supporter and he's an admirer of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin was a colonel in the KGB and he rose to the rank of colonel in the KGB by torturing people and murdering people. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a murderer. He's probably even a mass murderer. He's an example of the worst thing that a human being can be. He's as bad as it gets as a human being on this earth. And he got to be a colonel in the KGB and later on became the head of the KGB, ordered assassinations, ordered tortures, ordered the murder of journalists, of people who disagreed with the administration, who, who he just personally felt he didn't like. Anybody in his organization who wasn't behaving the right way, off with their heads. But first, let's torture them to see what they find out. He is a thief, he is a liar, and he's a murderer. And Donald Trump admires him. Now, 
uh, Trump reminds me of, uh, not of Putin, and he doesn't remind me of Hitler too much either. Now, Trump the other day said that he had sacrificed for his country. The latest, well, let me go back to something I was saying before. It's not uh, that Trump is vulgar or cartoonish or that he yells or that he expresses his rage in childlike ways and has black and white, simple, childlike solutions to problems. The people who support him uh, like that. Uh, and no one is going to come and um, who hasn't already come uh, and, and join his following and vote for him. He's got his voters. He's going to have to get them out, and you can only pray that he's not going to get as many voters as Hillary Clinton will. You could only pray. Sometimes you look at the polls and they're a little close. It's not that he's vulgar and cartoonish and does things which are scandalous. It's that he's inhumane, that he's insensitive. Um, this should ultimately perhaps affect even the people who support him. The fact that he treats, that he's a complete hypocrite and a liar, that he treats everybody um, including he especially treats uh, you know small businessmen and workers and everything he says is a lie somehow that may penetrate to the people who are now following him but i don't know if it will or not the latest thing that trump has done and but he i want to say one thing that trump admires putin right he admires putin which is unbelievable to begin with that he would be a presidential candidate admiring a murderous thieving dictator um, he Trump is not even, um, he doesn't even have the guts or the balls of Adolf Hitler. Now, <laughs> I don't want to hear a lot of crap from people about how I said something admiring or, um, or uh, you know, or, or that I thought Hitler was in any way a good person, okay? Give me, give me a break with this, right? It's the radio, I'm, and I'm speaking stream of consciousness, obviously. But Hitler at least fought for his country in World War I, rose to the rank of corporal, and probably was wounded. I think he got the uh, German version of the Purple Heart, and he got an Iron Cross, and it wasn't from running away. He sacrificed something for his country. Okay, insane monster that he was, uh, at least he sacrificed something for his country. If you watch the Democratic Convention, one of the most impressive moments at the Democratic Convention was the appearance of this very tall man with this somewhat short uh, woman, a man and wife. They were the parents, they are the parents of uh, a captain in the army in, in Afghanistan, I think it was, who was killed in Afghanistan. And it might have been Iraq, but I think it was in Afghanistan. And they uh, brought them on, obviously, as examples. You know, the, the people who produce these spectacles, these shows, <clears throat> are um, they want to have they produce them for effect. And if they have to manipulate people and bring people on, uh, you know, to make a point, they will do it. Not that I don't know how much they care about these issues or the people that they're bringing on, but they do it to get voters, to solidify voters, and to get more voters. But they brought this man on, and you know who I'm talking about. I forget his name now. I think his last name might have been Khan. I don't know. K-H-A-N. There was a captain uh, who uh, heroically um, sacrificed himself in Afghanistan. Uh, not, you know, they had a general on. I know it's maddening, right, the way I keep interrupting myself. They had a general on, John Allen. Uh, Clinton had this general on, or the people who ran Clinton's convention had a general on named John Allen. 
and he was um, he is a marine general now he's probably a retired marine general he was the head of the United States forces and the allied quote unquote forces in Afghanistan and he's screaming and yelling you know screaming and yelling about uh, and everybody's yelling USA 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 it just sounds like a Heil Hitler to me every time I see a huge crowd screaming USA it makes me gives me the creeps it just reminds me of fascist crowds screaming and, and sticking their hand up. Uh, USA, USA, you know, Sig Heil, Sig Heil. It all has the same feeling to me. And I think it all comes from the same root of this mass desire to, uh, to join with other people in, uh, in some frenzy, uh, almost like a feeding frenzy. Uh, of, uh, it's not patriotism, and I don't know what it is, but it scares me, whatever it is. But anyhow, this guy, this one of the most enlightened moments at the convention was this man stood up who was the father and there was the mother next to him, uh, Muslims. I think they're from Pakistan. And um, their son was killed in an act of heroism, uh, also protecting his, uh, some of his men in his company uh, over in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, Donald Trump managed within a day and now it's over a couple of period, period of a couple of days to insult this man, to say that he uh, was acting like a typical Muslim and didn't let his wife speak at all, that he did all the talking, um, and he managed to figure out some other ways to insult this guy. This is the kind of thing I think that will be, or I hope will be, his undoing. Uh, leave Clinton alone for a moment. Uh, I'll get to her uh, maybe next week or talk about her in more detail in another show. But when it comes to Trump, I think this will be, if anything can be his undoing, it will be this. First of all, I don't think he's got enough votes to beat her um, to begin with. <clears throat> I don't think enough people, and obviously even Republican people, uh, who are normal, regular Republicans, I can't imagine them voting for Clinton, uh, for uh, Trump, pardon me, sending him money that he needs for his ads. And I can't, I just can't imagine it happening. It's... It's that he would insult this man and insult the speech this man made, this moving speech about how we are all brothers and sisters, about how his son lost his life defending this country. Forget about USA, USA, USA. That's all patriotic, uh, you know, addle brain bullshit. Uh, what's important is that this man got up and told a very human story, and he wasn't yelling and screaming like most politicians do at these conventions. The worst speakers at the conventions are the politicians. They talk in this flat, loud, monotonous, repetitive voice and say the same things over and over again. This really was a human story. Whether or not he's up there to manipulate people or to gather people in or to create an impression, I don't know. But that's what he was doing. Uh, he was telling a human story about losing his son and how touching and how, and how wonderful and how overwhelmingly humane and human this speech was. And Trump manages to react like this. So I don't know what's going to happen in the, uh, in the election. It is scary to have even uh, a closeness in the polls. Uh, the only last thing I'll mention before, because I only have about a minute left, is once again, uh, there is, yes, Jill Stein, the Green Party, and there is Gary Johnson, Libertarian Party. I'm already getting screamed at by people by even mentioning their names. I'm going to throw the election away. I do have to mention that they exist, all right? Again, you want to get in touch with me in any way, join my mailing list or read my blog or comment, go to faderfiles.com, and I will see you next week. Thank you.
Devil 